Thanks again for joining us. We are so glad to be together. Uh, for the past few weeks, past couple months, we have been in a series on, uh, called I Am. We've been exploring in the Gospel of John the I Am statements of Jesus. You know, identity matters deeply. Um, it, it's much more than a name. It's much more than the ways I behave. Identity speaks to something deeper. Uh, so when someone knocks on your door and, and you can't see who it is and you're a little hesitant to open, what do you say? Who's there? Yeah. Who, who is it? You say something like that. Because identity matters. Uh, depending on who's standing on the other side of that door, uh, we will react differently in that moment. I was talking with a family that was just at Disneyland recently with their 18-month-old child and said, man, our kid loved the roller coasters, the rides, playing, not so sure about the big creature costumes, right? And another guy we were standing with there, he says, um, you know, those kind of creep me out too because I never know who's behind that mask, Right? And, and this is the question, what happens when we uh, engage either individually or, or we engage other people in this world that kind of live that way with a mask on, right? And we're always asking this question of identity. And so today we're digging into the question of the identity of Jesus, a fundamental question to those of us who are following Jesus and a fundamental question to those of us just exploring what does faith look like? Who is Jesus? That's precisely the question we're asking today. And what would it look like to follow him? So we're going to be, begin today in John chapter 7. And uh, today we're going to kind of look at, at two feasts, um, uh, the story of two feasts, which we love food here. Uh, we love to eat. Uh, we love uh, table fellowship and opportunities to have conversation. Well, so did the Israelite people in the first century. Uh, and yet their meals had much more meaning and depth than just sharing a meal and having random conversation. Uh, their meals and their feasts uh, were, were deeply rooted in their history uh, about remembering the things that God had done, about remembering who God was, uh, but the story never ended with what had happened in the past. It was always some sort of redemptive story that they were remembering what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in the future. So in John chapter 7, chapter 7 and 8, and we're just going to read a couple verses out of it. Read 7 and 8 later if you want. Uh, it's two two chapters of just questionings and doubts and confusion about the identity of Jesus, and it's a fascinating text. It takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was a unique annual feast of the Jewish people uh, in that the Gentile nations were actually invited to come to Jerusalem and participate. Now, if you're familiar with um, some of the story of uh, the Israelite people, uh, they lived relatively isolated. They didn't live in community with the nations around them. They weren't supposed to marry outside of their people. Uh, they were to be kind of the set-apart nation. Now, sometimes they took that way too far and forgot that their purpose of being the nation of God was to be a blessing to the rest of the world. That's a whole other problem that we won't dig into much today. But this was a fascinating feast because we catch this glimpse of a God inviting other nations. It, it was a reality at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a kind of prophetic or a foreshadowing of what would come in Jesus. So the Israelite people uh, were to invite uh, people of other nations to the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Um, when it was established through Moses, uh, God told Moses to gather all the men, women, children, along with the foreigners in their land, so they could learn to fear the Lord. And this is kind of a cryptic phrase, but the idea is to learn to love and understand and approach God. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 31. And so, on the Feast of Tabernacles, they would build small huts on their porches. Each family would build a hut, and this was to remember their time wandering in the desert. But not just uh, the struggle of wandering in the desert, but to look towards God's provision, that God sustained us while we were in the desert, uh, and to consider a future hope that had been promised by many prophets, uh, that there is hope coming, that God's provision has not ended, but is an ongoing thing today. And so uh, here we are at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus has uh, many followers and many enemies at this point in his ministry. Uh, quite openly and obviously, the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, uh, are attempting to have Jesus killed. And so they are out to get him, and it, sometimes he slips away from the, the crowds and the people trying to seize him. Uh, at other times, uh, he avoids places, and he has so far been avoiding the Feast of Tabernacles. But as you read in chapter 7, the first part, uh, Jesus um, kind of secretively enters Jerusalem uh, and the area and then he stands up in the temple courts, uh, and he begins to teach and to preach. This is a very dangerous thing to do, as he was being pursued by the Pharisees, um, wanting to have him killed. And, and so Jesus goes ahead, and he just steps up on stage, and he begins to speak to the people. Um, and the pertinent question arises as Jesus stands up and begins to speak. Who is this man? In John chapter 7, verse 25, at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem begin to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Is the question being asked. Now, some in the audience have concluded this is the Savior. This is the Messiah. Others were on the fence. Pharisees were convinced this could not be. It does not look like we expect it to look. He doesn't speak or act like we expected our Savior to act. And so many say no. Some say yes. And the question is, could this be the Messiah? Now, the debate uh, continues over Jesus' identity. Throughout his ministry, even after his death, his resurrection, the questions arise and people contradict uh, the reality of what has happened. And I think that's kind of normal. I think that's kind of human nature. Have you ever found yourself looking for something that's right in front of your face? So this last week, um, I was uh, hurrying out of the house, and it's finally spring, there's sun out, and I realized I needed sunglasses uh, for this drive, and so I'm rushing around the house trying to find my sunglasses, and after checking three or four rooms, I realized they were right there in my hand. Um, have you ever done that? I know some people that have gone looking for their glasses while wearing them, right? Yes. So sometimes we find ourselves looking for something that's just right in front of our face. And maybe the thing that makes it so challenging to see it or to find it is our, our frenzied, hurried pace, right? We get into this uh, headspace where we are just hurrying to try to accomplish whatever this task is or find this thing that we cannot find. And it's quite often our, our hurriedness that's getting in the way 
of seeing that thing. If we would just slow down, we'd begin to remember where we'd put it. If we just slow down, we'd be able to see better or feel better that they're right there in my hands, right? If we just slow down, things begin to come a little more clear. So following the Feast of Tabernacles, sometime later uh, comes the uh, Passover feast. And let me say that things have begun to slow down at this point. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. Now questions still uh, are, are still around Jesus. Who is this man? What is he doing? Is he our Messiah? Um, so the questions still reign, but things have begun to slow down. And people are beginning to see a little more clearly. And at the second feast that we look at today, the Passover feast, the Israelites remembered God delivering them from slavery in Egypt. They remember uh, the ten plagues and the final plague in which Pharaoh finally says, get out of my nation, and the Israelites finally are freed from their bondage in Egypt. So they remember at Passover God's provision. Um, they, they realize that God is the one who has paid the price, who has bought them their freedom. And here's the fascinating thing. At both of these feasts that we're considering, the Feast of Tabernacles and now the Feast of Passover, they look towards um, God's provision, and they look towards a future hope that God is bringing about. And here's a fascinating thing to me. Standing in the midst of both of these feasts is Jesus, God's very provision the hope that is to come stands in the midst. And some try to kill him and some follow his, you know, some listen to his voice. Many people react in different ways. But as the narrative plays out and as I have come to believe in my life, standing there in the midst at these feasts was their provision, was their savior, was their hope, was everything these feasts were about, a God who is faithful and so here at the, the Passover feast, Jesus is sitting with just his 12. Quite often they were surrounded by crowds of thousands of people, but remember things have slowed down a little bit in this last week of his life. Jesus finds himself sitting with his 12, and they're feeling a lot of anxiety and a lot of confusion because if you read back in John before, John chapter 14 when we're here, you'll see that the tone of things has begun to shift as things have begun to slow down. Multiple times now, Jesus has said, I'm going to leave you. And they're like, why, why in the world would you leave us? Multiple times now, Jesus has called out one of his 12 in front of the crowd, in front of the people, and they're getting uncomfortable. I mean, he tells one, you're going to betray me, right? He tells another guy, uh, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny that you even know me by the end of this. His disciples are feeling anxiety. They're feeling fear. And in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus, sitting with his 12 apostles, he says these words, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house uh, has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, you will come. I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? That's a good question, Thomas, right? Yeah, that's a really good question. Once again, Jesus is speaking to his closest followers, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes quite literally, and they are continuing to not understand what's going on in this story. 
Uh, so in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their fear, uh, because Jesus is saying things like, I'm going to go away and you're going to betray me, um, Jesus begins with, do not let your hearts be troubled. And here's what he links immediately after the statement of, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe not only in God, but believe in me. He uses this, this word believe. That's kind of our, our focus for this year in 2019. We're exploring what does belief look like? Why would I make that commitment? And what changes in life as I make that belief commitment? Uh, Jesus uses that very word with his followers. Now, these are the 12 that are closest to him, have been following him for three years of his ministry. And he says, hey, it's time to believe. This reminds me that belief is an ongoing journey. So if you already made a faith commitment to Jesus at some point in your life, the story's not over, guys. Belief is an ongoing journey. So he says, don't be troubled, but instead choose to believe. And I think his words here are very poignant. You believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, we have a friend here in the church who um, has been having fascinating conversations with a friend at work who at first said, uh, I am an atheist, uh, in quite aggressive terms, spoke very negatively of Christians. And a friend here in the church uh, chose to take a very gentle posture um, and ask some questions, engage in conversation conversation on whatever level this guy wanted to. And uh, in time, as she and I predicted in our conversation, uh, he, uh, the conversation began to shift uh, away from, I'm an atheist to, uh, well, maybe there's a God, uh, but he just can't be known right? This is a common shift in our culture and uh, probably true of, of more people than are atheists. Uh, we find people who are agnostic. That is some belief in a higher power. We got no access to it. Uh, it's far away. It doesn't really matter to my life. So agnostic. And Jesus says this, you believe in God, but believe also in me. And I think he's speaking into the minds and hearts of people quite similar to the ones that we are, in that there is some belief out there. Like there's some idea that there's something more ingrained in a majority of our, our culture and a majority of our people. And Jesus says, let's take the next step. Let's come to know that God and to believe in me. And in a few minutes, he'll link those two. He'll say that in believing in me, in knowing me, you will know God more fully. Uh, last thing here in the beginning of John 14, as he speaks of his father's house, you know, they're thinking maybe a literal house or something like that. I can maybe understand a little bit of their confusion because Jesus is using the language of a marriage proposal right now. Uh, he's speaking to his followers in terms of, uh, of, a, of an engagement. He's saying, uh, what is mine, what is my father's will be yours. I'm going to take you to this place. And, uh, and he's using very pr provocative and strange language as he says to them. But here's the promise he's making to them. You are mine and I am yours, right? He's saying, uh, I'm going to leave you. He's been saying that for some time, but don't worry. I'm coming back because you are mine. We are engaged in that respect. We continue in verse 6, Jesus answered. Oh, remember Thomas's question? How can we know, uh, uh, we don't know where you're going, so how in the world could we know the way to get there? And Jesus answers in verse 6, our I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, uh, you do not know him, uh, 
you do know him uh, and have seen him. He says, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip answered, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, do you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is a beautiful and a challenging passage. And I'll, I'll tell you why it's challenging for some of us and for people around us. Uh, we don't like exclusivity. And Jesus' statement of, um, I am the way and no one comes to the Father except through me, uh, can sound quite harsh and challenging. I want to shift our thinking just a little bit on the subject to say um, the language and the intent of Jesus' message here is one of invitation, um, not of exclusion. Uh, you see, Jesus is saying here, uh, I am the way and you can come to know the Father. Jesus is saying to each of his 12 and to each of us here today, through me, you, you, you can have access to the Father. And there is exclusive language in here, and I can't deny that, but I can point our attention to the fact that it is a statement of invitation, that you are invited to know the Father through me. Um, you know, we're not the first to struggle with these concepts. Um, uh, in fact, C.S. Lewis uh, some, what, 70 years ago, I'm guessing? I'd need to look exactly. He writes a book, uh, Mere Christianity. Um, and he speaks to this idea of Jesus' identity. Who is this man and how will we perceive him? And he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. How much, uh, how must, uh, I'm sorry, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was either a lunatic, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifi terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. You see, this is a question we ask of Jesus today. Who was this man? And many people have concluded many different things over the ages. Uh, and yet the Christian church lives on with this conviction that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah, and he is our hope. And so we gather in places like this, our little gathering here today, many other gatherings throughout the Tri-Cities and throughout the world with this in common, this belief that Jesus is the Messiah. He gave new hope. And he promised three things in this text. Uh, he says, I am the way. Uh, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, for those of you under 20 years old in this room, um, years ago there was this really amazing thing that was called a map, okay? And a map... 
was this little piece of paper that um, you would like fold out and you would, uh, you would look at to figure out where the streets or roads are. If you're taking a cross-country trip, you have this big map of the U.S. and you just know the highway's number. That's all you know. And so those things on the side of the road, those green signs that like say what highway and road those are, those used to matter. Those used to mean something uh, because we weren't just blindly following our GPS, right? Uh, That's the story of the map. I just wanted to educate people here today. So there used to be this thing called a map. Uh, Jesus does not point them towards the map in this text. He doesn't say, hey, you're going to need to dig back into the scriptures. You're going to have to find the best teachers to figure out the way to get there. What did Jesus say in the text? He says, I'm the way. Yeah, so follow me, uh, which this is a terrible comparison, so just throw something if you have to. Uh, so I guess Jesus is a little bit more like Siri than a map, uh, in that when I drive in my car, um, my, my phone my, through my speakers just tells me where to go, right? Uh, it says turn right in 300 feet, and I guess that's a little bit, this is terrible. Why am I so modernizing this text? I'm going to move on because we don't even have enough time for me to play with this anymore. Here's the idea. Jesus doesn't say, figure it all out, make the best course, take the best course of action. He says, listen to my voice, follow me, okay? That's what Jesus tells his people because I am the way. And so you will get to the Father by following me. Judaism had identified a number of different theories on how they would get to God. Uh, for instance, the Pharisees said you got to be good enough. You got to follow all the right rules and all the right laws, and in so doing, you will be good enough to be in the presence of God. Or uh, the Essenes in uh, first century, they were separatists, so they would live in little, little communities. They would separate themselves from the world and just focus on our little spiritual reality that is God. Or the Zealots, which was a violent movement in the first century, trying to overthrow Rome, saying, We need to be the nation of Israel again. We need to be God's nation again, and we will have God back. Uh, We will be back in God's favor if, through violence, we overthrow this Roman government and become our own nation. Many people had identified many ways that if we do this, if we live in this way, we will be able to access God. But Jesus says, hey, I'm the way. But here's the beautiful thing. He invites each of us to follow and to know God. He says, I am the truth. And uh, when we hear the word truth in our uh, Western uh, legal system, we think of like truth versus lie, right? Um, what's interesting is what Jesus says here is um, not a Greek word that would be uh, used to describe the difference in a truth and a lie. But instead, he says, I am the truth, referring to the essence of life. Like that truth that undergirds everything that that is. He says, I am the truth that is the essence of life. And yes, I believe Jesus' words to be true in the true versus false statement. But Jesus says something much more broad and much more beautiful here to his first century audience. He says, I am the truth. I am the essence, the very life Not ironically, he goes on to say, and I am the life. Andy spoke beautifully on um, the resurrection and the life two weeks ago. Jump on our website and listen to that podcast if you didn't get to be here. Uh, But I want to point out a couple things about this phrase, um, life. In John 10, uh, Jesus had said a few weeks prior, we looked at um, his statement, I am the good shepherd, and he had said, now the thief comes to steal and destroy, but I have come to give life and life abundantly. 
Like, I have come to give a fullness of life is what Jesus promised. And again, in this text, he says, I am the life. Now, in Greek, uh, and again, let me back up just a little bit. Um, the English text that we read in our NIV or New Living Translation or King James, uh, whatever translation we're reading from, uh, keep in mind our translation from the Greek in which the New Testament was originally written. So what's really cool uh, for scholars, people that like this stuff, is there's so much complexity and beauty to understanding an original language. Uh, I mean, we get a good translation. We have a number of really good translations to read this in English, but quite often the depth and the meaning, uh, the understanding of a first century person uh, would be far beyond what we get when we read the text today. And so in Greek, there's three different uh, terms, and there's actually more than three, but three that I'll mention uh, that refer to life. The first is bios, and that has to do with like physical life, food, water, air. It has to do with all these things. Um, the second is suke, life, which refers to kind of the soul. Often in scripture, this would be the ter- a term kind of distinguishing between humanity and animals. Uh, So it goes a little bit deeper in the suke, but Jesus uses a third term, uh, zoe life. So zoe life, and this refers to uh, a spiritual, abundant, eternal life. In fact, zoe is the kind of life that God is claimed to have in scripture. Like it it refers to something far bigger and more beautiful than simply uh, the physical reality or the soul as though these are two very separate things, right? No, instead Zoe life refers to an abundant, eternal, and spiritual life born of Jesus. You see, here's the thing. He offers not just uh, a physical uh, improvement in our life, not not just uh, a deeper spiritual engagement, but a whole new way of life. And friends, I hope that sounds like good news today. Jesus says, I am the way, so we follow him towards the Father. I am the truth, that is the essence of life. And he says here, this essence of life, I offer it to you, a whole new way of life. A new way of life in which we don't just run after that next promotion or the new things that we want. Uh, We don't just uh, withdraw like the Essenes into the spiritual reality, but instead a new way of life. And I ask myself, so what will this new life be characterized by? Like, what will this new life look like that Jesus is offering us we could take the whole of Scripture and say, this is the story of the life God is inviting you to. That, that's good, and, and, and we do that in, in a broader sense. But today I want to highlight a few things that will characterize this new life that Jesus is offering us. Uh, it will be a life of satisfaction and peace. That's not to say we won't suffer. In fact, throughout the, the first century and centuries since, uh, Christians have suffered in many different ways, both for their faith and for other reasons. But the promise of this new life is satisfaction and peace, even in the midst of suffering that might take place. This life will be characterized by a spirit who is pouring love, joy, and kindness into our lives. And that love, joy, and kindness is overflowing into the lives of people around us. That is the kind of life Jesus is inviting us into. He invites us to a hope, and not just a hope in the next life, though yes, he promises that hope, but a hope and a purpose here and now. That is the life. And finally, Jesus promised us a life that is characterized by a nearness to God. He says, if you will follow me, you will know 
more of him. I had a great meeting with Craig Backer this last week. And um, uh, one of the things that came to mind was quite often we think, uh, how do we apply Scripture to our lives? Uh, but Craig was challenging me to say, really, the, the better question there is, how is Scripture shaping me, right? Uh, how, how is Scripture shaping my worldview? Um, it's, it's not like Scripture is this little thing that I'll apply in my life. The question is, how is God's Word uh, shaping me and shaping my worldview and the ways that I live? And so today we ask the question, so what does this text do to kind of reshape who we are? How does this redefine who we are? I love to ask the question, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, truth, and life. So who does that make me as a follower of Jesus, right? One who follows, one who trusts in the life that he provides and lives into that life. So today we are challenged um, to follow Jesus. We are challenged to engage in the life that is the essence of all truth and all life, to know more love, joy, and kindness, to demonstrate more of it. To find more peace and satisfaction in good times and in times of struggles in our lives. To know more hope and to know the nearness of God through the Spirit. This is the life that Jesus invites us to today. Let's pray about that. Father God, we thank you for this day for this opportunity to to look into your word, uh, to look into uh, this gospel account that John wrote for us of Jesus, his teaching, and his life. Father, may we know more of you as we know more of Jesus. Teach us to follow in Jesus' way. Teach us to know more of your truth, the essence of life. And Father, help us to live into this life that you have offered us. In Jesus' name, amen. So today I'll close with this. May we know Jesus, the essence of life. May we follow Jesus, and may we live life, new life, Zoe life. Blessings and have a great week.